Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 439th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Dan Davis, Associate Professor of Classics at Luther College, who is going to talk to us about the Caesarea, excavating the city of Herod. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Bernard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. To begin with, we welcome to our show Dr. Dan Davis. Hello, Dan. Hi there. Great to be with you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, we call this segment Farouk Danarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on who Herod was and where the city is located? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, so King Herod was a Hasmonean king of Judea um, in what is the, the area of the world that we call the Holy Land, that is Israel. Um, and he lived, well, I should say he, he reigned between about 37 and around 4 B.C. Um, and in, that pro, in, the, in the process of uh, his long reign, he built a lot of really big things, including the big Temple Mount, where the where the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall is now, in addition to a number of other uh, just major monuments all over uh, all over what is today Israel. Okay, um, so of course um, Herod is a name that uh, pretty much has a very uh, prominent part in uh, Middle Eastern history because um, there are actually, if I recall, two of them. And if you could give our listeners a little clarity between the one and the other. Um, so, right. So Herod the Great um, uh, was this guy who got caught up in the Roman Civil Wars, uh, right? The wars that took place between um, oh, the forces, I guess you would say, of, of Augustus or Octavian, the one of the first Roman emperors, and, um, and then his lieutenant Agrippa, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, Mark Antony and his girlfriend Cleopatra, on the other. And this is the Herod that uh, most people know of. Um, Herod is is the guy responsible for the slaughter of the innocents and the, these biblical stories about how evil he was. Um, the next Herod, Herod Agrippa, is one who came along afterwards, and uh, he's not to be confused with the Agrippa of of the emperor um, uh, Augustus, who also had a good friend and lieutenant named Agrippa. Let's try to keep those two uh, separate. Yes. So could you give us, a our listeners, uh, kind of um, an impact when you're talking about that he pretty much built a lot of phenomenal things? Uh, could you describe the times? I mean, um, I guess we as historians, and I should say the people within our listening group, we take the movers and shakers for what they've accomplished kind of for granted because, uh, uh, hell, you can look it up in Wikipedia, but it's obviously much more complex and uh, it's much more diverse. Can you give our listeners some of those perspectives? Sure. In terms of what Herod the Great built, um, it's really hard for anyone who goes to Israel today to take a tour of anything and not have some connection with Herod the Great. Um, it, if you're in Jerusalem, you're going to see the the Western Wall, and you're going to see, you know, which is one of the most important places in all um, Judaism for for worshiping. Um, and so, he, uh, he, he in the process of building the the Western Wall, he also built um, the the Second Temple, which was later destroyed by the Romans. 
And so he so he's responsible for that major building project of this enormous architectural complex. And um, you know, as you wander the streets of Jerusalem, uh, it, eventually you're going to run into that enormous platform. In some places, it towers um, nine, ten stories tall, and it's still there. It's pretty amazing. But in addition to the to that western wall, that Wailing Wall in Jerusalem that we can see today, he built Caesarea, this monstrous um, seaport city from scratch. There's hardly anything there on the seacoast of Israel, but he, with the help of Roman engineers, built this enormous city. I mean, everything from walls to uh, marketplaces to neighborhoods, um, entertainment areas, such as uh, there's, a, there's a racetrack there, there's a theater. Um, there's all kinds of just uh, all the things that a, a Greco-Roman city should have. He built at Caesarea. In addition to that, he had he you know he was a king and he liked to experience the pleasures of being a king. And part of uh, part of those pleasures was building isolated palaces out in the middle of nowhere. One of them is a place called Her- uh, Herodian, just this sort of mound, uh, what is today in uh, the West Bank and. Um, it's a it's sort of a getaway. It's a place for him to get away from Jerusalem and from the politics and 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 remove himself from that and get some quiet. Uh, it, recently, there was a discovery of a burial chamber at the Herodian. It was it's thought that he might have been buried there, although they never did find the actual uh, the actual body. Probably the most famous thing, though, that Herod, that Herod is known for is Masada. This if you, so, if you take a tour down to the Dead Sea. You're going to see the Dead Sea, and it's constantly receding every year. Sadly, they're draining it off for for um, for irrigation projects. Uh, but there is this plateau that towers above the Dead Sea, and on top of that plateau is this fortress palace. Now it takes about an hour or so to walk to the top of this thing for people my age. I'm in my fifties, and it just about kills you every time you walk up there. But once you get up on top and you see what's going on, there's just that monumental architecture that's associated with Herod is is visible everywhere you look. There are cisterns, huge cisterns. There's a Roman bathhouse on top. Uh, there's a multi-tiered uh, palace complex that gives you just beautiful views of um, of that part of Israel in the desert. And uh, and all of that was was his getaway, simply his getaway <laughs> from the politics of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's great to be king. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on station KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement. Catch up on news about KALA. And listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Dan Davis, 
Associate Professor of Classics at Luther College, and we're talking about the Caesarea, excavating the city of Herod. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. Brett, as the resident Wartburg historian, why don't you start off? Gladly. Um, Dan, how long was Caesarea inhabited? Oh, Caesarea? We have a hard date for its foundation, Uh, 11 or 10 B.C., and then it really fell out of use gradually starting uh, just after the Crusader period, so sometime around the late 13th century. So it had a long run, 13 centuries. Okay. Terry? Yes. It's, well, it's been a few decades since I was in Caesarea, but I remember seeing the aqueduct, the, well, the structure for it, and just amazed at, at it. Can you talk a little bit about why Herod wanted this built and why it's considered such an engineering feat for those times? Sure. The aqueduct is an amazing structure to go see. It's right on the beach at Caesarea, just north of the city. And if you want to go out and have a picnic on the beach, there it is. It's just, and you can find shade from the blazing uh, sun. Um, Now, you know, aqueducts are a feature of most ancient cities in the Greek and Roman period. And, you know, cities wanted to be, well, spoiled with bathhouses and waterworks, you know, and they also needed uh, to deal with drainage for, for sewage. So when you know, Herod set about with his engineers to build this new city. He, I'm sure, had a list of things he wanted, and among them must have been uh, a way to pipe water from local springs, you know, you know higher than, than Caesarea, bring them all the way down into the city. Um, so, you know, why he would do that? To, you know, to help his citizens of that new city partake in, 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 in you know, the Mediterranean culture that most people in that part of the world were used to by that period. Uh, could you give us, um, I know you gave us a brief history of Herod, uh, but could you also talk about, he was king, obviously, but his family had the lineage. Um, what was his family's uh, extensive time in uh, what is present-day Israel as being um, in charge of it? So, you know, Herod, so this is where the historians can really come in. Now, I, I have to sort of... Um, I'm not going to try to minimize what I know, but I have some rudimentary knowledge of, of Herod's lineage. Uh, but keep in mind, I'm an archaeologist. Okay. And so I, I, while I deal with the political currents, uh, I mostly focus on economic stuff, right? So I, I'm interested in Caesarea mostly from an economic standpoint. Uh, how, how did it function as a, as a trading port? And, and how long did it last? And what was the, the technology that went into its construction? Um, but let me try to answer some of your questions here. Um, now, in that particular case, Herod, as I understand it, was a member of the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a dynasty that had gone back into the Hellenistic period. That is a period that stretched from between the 3rd through the 1st century B.C. And, um, and then he and his family emerged as uh, you know the survivors of a lot of the political machinations that took place between the Rome, sorry, the Greek generals, the so-called successors of Alexander the Great, and um, and then their uh, their dynasties that intermarried with local aristocracies, including the Hasmoneans, uh, that is the local uh, Jewish aristocracy. So he ended up, he and his uh, family line ended up, you know, on the winning side uh, politically, and Herod found himself king 
uh, kind of at a, at a more advanced age. I believe he was in his 40s when he came into the throne. Okay. Uh, Brett. So you said you talk, you uh, focus your research um, a lot on the economic side uh, and what archaeology can tell us about that. So what goods were going through the, the port? What were the major imports and exports, and how do you suss out what those were based on archaeological evidence? Sure, good question. I, we've been luckily we have about fifty years of really good archaeology that has taken place at Caesarea already. Much of it published, and so we we can dig through some of these books and find uh, some of the stuff that's been coming out of the ground uh, in various parts of the city. One of the main areas that deals with uh, the imports and exports of the city was the warehouse district, which is just south, uh, what is today south of the of the Southern Crusader Wall within the city. And there you see a bunch of warehouses all lined up in a row facing out to sea. Um, and in some of those warehouses uh, were found some of the produce of the countryside that, um, that was assembled there for, um, you know, for, for shipment um, abroad as exports on ships. Uh, so we find the, you know, the, the vast majority of it is agricultural produce from the plain of Sharon, which backs up... Um, and into the hinterland of Israel, or sorry, of, of Caesarea as you head east. It's a, it's a, even today, it's a really rich agricultural area. Uh, you'll find banana plantations everywhere there today. Um, so Herod, I think Herod, one of the reasons that Herod chose that site was to serve, um, was so that the city could serve as a, as an outlet for local produce. Um, and then all of that stuff could be shipped out to markets overseas. So archaeologists find not so much the foodstuffs, but they find the containers in which all those foodstuffs were were shipped. One of the uh, one of the main commodities was wine. Uh, there was a lot of really good wine in uh, that is grapes to be grown in that area of the world, and we find these clay jars called amphoras, which are transport jars basically, the the ancient barrel, if you will. <laughs> Uh, but which took a lot less labor to make, and, uh, and, and clay, of course, is cheap, so um, if not free. So we find uh, amphoras from all over, and um, uh, they can be linked back to Caesarea. In addition to that, uh, Caesarea would have would have shipped out um, a lot of uh, a lot of grain, and so unfortunately, that stuff does not leave an archaeological trace per se. But we do know about it from ancient literary sources. Okay. Terry. Yes, Dan. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience on an archaeological dig at uh, Caesarea Martina? Because obviously a lot of it's underwater. It'd be quite a unique experience. And did that change your academic direction uh, first being there? It did. Uh, so Caesarea has amazed me since I was a young man. I, I, I first volunteered as a, uh, as a junior at the University of Iowa uh, in 1995. I'm dating myself now. Um, and I, so they had an underwater excavation going on at the time. I volunteered, flew out to Israel for four weeks, and absolutely fell in love with the place. The underwater dig was to take part sorry, was, was part of a larger um, multi-university exploration of the site. The offshore component was to look for 
the technology that was used to build the harbor. Like, how did they create this enormous harbor out of nothing? There's the coastline there is straight as can be. There's no way to build a harbor except artificially. There's nothing, you know, there that's natural that you can take advantage of, you know, and build on. So these engineers threw out these huge barges made of uh, of concrete and just sank them one after the other and made this enormous basin that could compete uh, in terms of scale and size with the largest harbors in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, I I was hooked. Uh, that that changed everything for me. I thought I want this is what I want to do the rest of my life. <laughs> and so that was the only year that I spent there. The only summer I spent there um, for the next 25 years. <laughs> and then uh, in 2018, uh, my good friend uh, Dr. Joe Rife at Vanderbilt University invited me to take part in excavations there. And I thought, ah, oh, I'm one of those old guys now that I was working uh, under way back in 1995. I'm one of them now. So I've had, I, this uh, this site is, um, you know, it's like, for me, it's like, it, it just opened my eyes to a whole new world. Uh, it's sort of like the, the same effect that Pompeii has on people. That's what Caesarea had on me. Okay. So um, how does the Israeli government today, I mean, take care of um, all these incredible artifacts that you were talking about? I mean... As you pointed out, one factor, the Dead Sea is drying up, and there is some kind of questions of what Israel's future going to be geographically because mm-hmm. of mass population and, and in, instances of water shortages. So how is their handling of these great attributes uh, in today's world? Well, the, there's so many antiquities that have come out of the ground already in Israel, and uh, the vast majority of them sit in storage in shipping containers or warehouses, even depots underground in various parts of Israel. Most of the artifacts are fairly um, humdrum artifacts, you know, porcewares, rough-made pottery, um, you know, coins, some jewelry. But for the most part, it's like, you know, brick and ceramic stuff. That's and, And so... The Archaeological Service for Israel, which is called the Israel Antiquities Authority, they've had to figure out ways to store all this stuff. They've been very inventive with it. Um, the underground depots are a relatively new phenomena, as I understand. And uh, so a lot of the stuff that's never going to see the light of day again gets buried that way. On the other hand, Israel knows that, they, you know, that, that their economy is based on tourism, and people want to come over and see all the good stuff. <laughs> and that makes perfect sense. Well, they've built a number of of fantastic first-rate, you know, five-star museums, um, not just in Jerusalem, but all over the country. And in fact, there's a new museum in Caesarea itself that's incorporated into the ruins. So if you want to see some of the really best stuff that's come out of the ground uh, at Caesarea and from underwater too, for that matter, um, all you have to do is go to the site and then go to uh, the museum right in the middle of the site and, and, and take a look. It's also quite nice to get out of the heat and into the air conditioning. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, Brett. So one of the issues um, with modern archaeology is, is there's a lot of um, things being traded illicitly on the black market. And how? so how do you protect the dig? Um, and what's kind of the trade-off with the Israeli government's mindset 
you said some of this stuff will never see the light of day again. So why not allow some of that to hit the antiquities market? Okay, so the, all good questions. I, I think um, I'll start with the last one first. Uh, you know, most of the artifacts that come out of the ground are, um, well, let me put it to you this way. This is how I put it to my students. Archaeology is 90% garbage collection. The rest, the rest is register, registration, right? The rest is describing the garbage and then trying to make sense of the garbage later. The 90% I'm talking about, though, is broken pots. These are things that aren't worth much of anything. Um, they're almost all broken. It's really rare to find anything intact coming out of the ground um, just because it's been crushed right, and built over by subsequent civilizations. So uh, I guess if, if, if Israel wants to put that stuff uh, on the market, <laughs> I suppose they could do so. But I think that the idea is to uh, is to keep it in storage, just in case some later generation of archaeologists comes along with some new with some new technology that can help us extract even more information out of those artifacts. Right? It's the same reason that Pompeii has not been completely excavated. Right? There's still one third of the city still buried because the Italians believe that sometime in the future, some technology might come along where you know we can learn a lot more about Pompeii than we than we already know right now. So I yeah I, I subscribe to that uh, sentiment also. Okay. Um, yeah, Terry. Yes, Dan. I'd like to follow up on what you talked about—the many antiquities that have come out of the ground and the sea. And I had read that um, one of them was the Pilot Stone that was found at uh, Caesarea Martima. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why that was an important discovery, and is it located at the museum in Caesarea? Okay, sure. The pilot stone is not located in Caesarea. It's been moved to the National Museum in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty important um, document, right, because it is the only mention of Pontius Pilate, the, uh, the procurator of Judea um, at, the time of, uh, at the time of Jesus, right, the, one, the, the, the so-called uh, one responsible for um, sending Jesus to the, cruci- uh, to, the, to the cross, to the crucifixion. Um, the uh, right, so the fine spot of that stone is uh, is marked today. Uh, it's right on the edge of the southern part of Caesarea, where Herod's palace was built, his seaside palace. So people uh, can go there today and see um, uh, a, a a replica of the stone, and it says something like, you know, to to Augustus uh, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Uh, dedicated this stone. Uh, basically, that that's all it is. So it's not like it's um, <laughs> you know filled with historical data, unfortunately. But it does it does let us know that Pilate did exist. It's an extra biblical source on that fact. Okay. And when was that discovered? If I'm asked, just tell our listeners. I, I believe that was discovered in 1961. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it is customary that we give our guests the last words on our show. Uh, Dan, why do you think knowing about the ancient people is uh, and how they lived is relevant in today's world? I, one of the things I like to tell my students um, is, or I, sorry, one of the things I like to ask my students is whether they think 2,000 years ago was a long time ago. And the answer I typically get is, uh, well, aside from puzzled looks of the question, is uh, is yeah, that's a tremendously long time ago. 
And what I've learned in my few years of studying archaeology is that 2,000 years is a flash in the pan. Not much has changed in terms of humanity in the last couple of thousand years. Yes, a lot of, histor- a lot of historical events have taken place. Uh, the world is a much different place than it was 2,000 years ago. But people really haven't changed all that much, uh, I would argue. So when the, uh, when the ancients writes, uh, wrote stuff down and then that stuff is read by we moderns, um, we can immediately connect with it. Uh, people pop out of the pages of history and they have a personality. So, for example, if you're reading Josephus, right, this, this Jewish historian who, who uh, was captured by Romans in the first century, and, and you read the book that he wrote about the whole event, in fact, the whole first Jewish revolt, it's as if you want to call him Uncle Josephus. Uh, you can just really relate to what he's saying. Um, yeah, of course, you have to know Greek to read the original, but there's lots of English translations. And when you read it, it's as if you're reading a, uh, um, a history book written just a, just a few years ago. Um, so for me, archaeology telescopes time. It, it really brings people... Uh, together with with the past in a very intimate way, and shows that that those people who lived and experienced what they did are not that much different than us today. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University one hundred six point one FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 439th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Dan Davis, Associate Professor of Classics at Luther College, who talked with us about the Caesarea, excavating the city of Herod. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>